What's up, everybody? Welcome to Theology in the Dirt. We want to practice our theology in the public square of our homes, our city, and our world. We record Theology in the Dirt from Global Impact Restoration Home, where we work to address foster care and adoption crisis northwest Georgia, Georgia, southeast, and the world. We practice our theology in the public square. You can check out Restoration Rome by going to restorationrome.org. You can check out sermon notes and links for the rest of our podcast at theologyanddirt.com, or you go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff. My name is Mitchell Jolly. And I'm Chris Hayes. Who are you? Uh, I'm Gabriel Jolly. Well, how about we get down to a little bit of news today? Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Cannonball! Yeah, absolutely. Well, our, our urgent, horrifying news stories for the day are the U.S. military carried out strikes on more than 85 targets in Syria and Iraq in retaliation for the deaths of three U.S. service members who were Georgia-based um, uh, from Savannah, South Georgia. Um, God bless them and God rest them. And they rest in peace. Uh, those service members last week after an Iranian-backed militia struck Tower 22, a U.S. base in northern Jordan. The Pentagon said the U.S. strikes target a variety of facilities used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, and linked militias. And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Sunday that there will be additional response action taken by the administration against the IRGC, and these groups that are uh, being backed. In an interview with NBC News on Sunday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan didn't rule out striking targets in Iran itself. Meanwhile, the U.K. and U.S. on Saturday launched a wave of strikes in Yemen, targeting sites controlled by Iran-backed Houthis. Australia, Bahrain, Denmark, Canada, and the Netherlands, and New Zealand provided intelligence and logistics support for the attacks on 36 targets at 13 locations in Yemen. CENTCOM said. So CENTCOM also announced an addition, uh, an additional strike on Sunday, which hit a Houthi anti-ship missile uh, the U.S. says was preparing to launch against ships in the Red Sea. Uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson said on Saturday that the lower chamber will vote this week on a $17.6 billion in aid for Israel without the offsetting cuts to the inter, uh, Internal Revenue Service that angered Democrats during supplemental funding battles in the fall. The package would undercut bipartisan negotiations in the Senate over a bill, uh, the text of which was released Sunday, that would link funding for Israel, Ukraine, and the Indo-Pacific with immigration reform, but is unlikely to receive support in the Republican-controlled House, even if it manages to pass the Senate. House Republicans' stand-alone aid package would fund Israel's missile defense system as well as U.S. military operations in the region. And my... Um, uh, little local news. In Georgia, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, who's bringing uh, these massive racketeering uh, sprawling charges in case against uh, former President Trump and his associates, confirmed Friday her romantic relationship with the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, who is also working on the case, but denied the relationship should disqualify either of them continuing on the case. Both Wade and Willis, who say their relationship began in 2022 after Willis hired Wade in 2021, pushed back on the claim that she had benefited financially from hiring Wade by having him pay for trips the pair took together, writing in a court filing that financial responsibility for personal travel taken is divided roughly evenly between the pair. A defendant in the Georgia case, Michael Roman, is seeking to have the charges against him dismissed and Willis disqualified based on the allegation of misconduct. And finally, Apollo Creed passed away. God rest Carl Weathers' soul. 
Um, it died uh, on Thursday at the age of 76 last week. The Louisiana-born actor started his career as a professional football player. Played in the NFL and the Canadian Football League before leaving sport to become actor in 1974. He died in his sleep, according to his manager. He was on The Mandalorian. Um, Happy he, Gilmore. Happy Gilmore. He oh, was. He wasn't Happy Gilmore. He was. Uh, Jobs. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and um, he was one of the voices. Uh, his voice actor. He was a military figure. Was it? Um, oh shoot, uh, Woody. Uh, he was one of the Toy Story. Was he in Toy Story? He was a is a voice actor for a, a, a military figure in one of those films also. But mm. but Carl Weathers passed away at the age of seventy six in his sleep last week, and that is my news. Rest in peace. Absolutely. Um, well, the world's most famous groundhog, Punk Sutani Phil, did not see a shadow after emerging from his den in Gobbler's Knob, Pennsylvania, on Friday. That heralds early spring. <laughs> What a town. Is that a real town? That's a real town. No. That's where his home is. Gobblers. It's horrible. I knew y'all couldn't make it through that. There's no way. I was trying, but when you went, when you popped up. That's not real. I thought Punxsutawney was where he was from, but he's just, what is, oh my gosh. That's his name. I'm sorry, but that's amazing. I hope all of you Theology and Dirt listeners will pardon us. I hope you laugh too because that's horrible. Edit that out. (laughs) Please don't edit it out. That's amazing. Oh, man. So, he did not see a shadow, so that heralds an early spring according to the annual tradition. However, Phil's predictions are, sadly, unreliable. He and his groundhog ancestors have only been right 39% of the time since the tradition began in 1887, per CBS. But he has been more accurate than the coin cost a coin toss that was used prior to that. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, right? Yeah, absolutely. General Beauregard Lee, the groundhog here in Georgia, also predicted early, early spring. Uh, this is his fifth straight year predicting that. I'm and sorry, um, His name is Beauregard Lee? Yes. It used to be General Robert Lee, named after Robert yeah. E. Lee, and the, 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 uh, the older that. one. And then so the much. newer one is General Beauregard Lee, yep, yep. which doesn't get much more southern than <laughs> no, that, those three beautiful names. That's name. Yeah. Um, now, I'm going to always err on the side of warmer temperatures coming early, so count me on Team Groundhog. I, I'm a fan. And then let's see if I can get through this one without y'all ruining my <laughs> n- news even more. Although the hey. Gabe will like this one. Hey, the city. Hey, I'm not from Gobbler's Knob. My pucks is honey Phil. <laughs> I can't help that. Help us, Lord. <laughs> the, uh, the city of Atlanta was announced as one of the host cities for the 2026 World Cup this weekend. Yeah. Mercedes-Benz Stadium, home of the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United, will host eight matches in the 2026 World Cup, including five group stage matches, a round of 32 match, a quarterfinal match, and a semifinal match. This is exciting news for the city as soccer has continued to grow here, and this will undoubtedly be a massive deal for the city as these matches are hosted um, through June and July of 2026. So the FIFA World Cup 2026 tournament draw will take place in December 2025, at that time, specific teams and matchups for Atlanta will be announced. The World Cup will be the biggest sporting event in history with 48 teams participating in 104 matches across 16 cities in North America. The event will feature a new tournament format while keeping the exciting four-team group stage phase to ensure the ultimate football spectacle. The opening match will take place in Mexico City on June 11th, and the final match will be held in New York, New Jersey on July 19th. And it has been confirmed that the coach of Team USA – Will not be Ted Lasso, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, dead gum, man. 
What so, a shame. I know. Hey, don't yeah. pitchers and catchers report really soon here? Yep. Well, yeah. Another week or so. Coming up. I feel we like will, there's We a, will have baseball every month oh, until yes. through beginning of November. Oh, praise God. Yeah. We might need to do an episode on how God yeah. loves baseball. Mm-hmm. And then, do maybe do our 2024 Major League yes. Baseball predictions yes. bonus podcast episode. I'm feeling yeah. it. I like it. Live Both. from. Good. You know, guys, I think it's That's time to, you know what? It's time to shake and bake. Shake and bake. Shake and bake. Shake and then bake. Shake and bake. Shake and bake. It's shake and bake time. Shake and bake, buddy. Shake it before you bake it. <laughs> it's time for the show. It's time to shake and bake, baby. That went on for so long. Yeah, that was awesome, wasn't can't it? Can't say we don't have fun on yeah, theology of the dirt. We, so you can. Uh, yeah, we have we have we have groundhogs from Gobbler's Knob, and we have shake and bake. We have a we have a good time. Well, mm. uh, anyway, today we want to do a follow up show. <clears throat> and uh, last week we asked the question, "Who are the sons of God?" Uh, and and what's interesting, uh, <laughs> we got more comments. I got more comments on certain things, whether my my blog or YouTube, and a lot of questions and a lot of follow-up uh, with folks going, oh, okay, that that I think it solved some things for some people, and I generated more questions for some people, which is good. Totally. We got called dumb arses <laughs> as well on our YouTube post. <laughs> we did. Stuff. We deleted that one because that wasn't helpful. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you leave that one up, man. Should yeah. have. I, I left one on my blog. Somebody made it. I mean, they would cussed cussed at me on my blog. So I just I always – I approve everything. I don't care. I mean, that's like whatever. It's just on the – because I just – Part yeah. of it is I just like other people to see what other people say, but yeah. Anyway, so it's interesting. I oh, yeah. I like it. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not bad. It's okay, but it's just interesting that 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 something like that generates such a hard response. So that's fine. But I, I think I think it it makes us have to go back and um and dig into some questions because there's some worthy yeah. worthy stuff there. Um, so we'll do a follow up with some questions. So. We have a repeat guest today. Um, you guys remember uh, he's been with us before. This is his third time on Theology in the Dirt. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. So he has had his ACL surgery three weeks ago, and he's actually starting to get uh, ACL meniscus. He's starting to get a little mobile as yep. he's doing his rehab. So Gabe Jolly's back with us today. So how's that knee feeling? Well, it's feeling good. It's good. feeling better. Um, walking's getting easier. Still working Still working hard at PT. It's yeah. That's right. Got PT this afternoon, don't you? Indeed, indeed. And get to go get tortured for about two hours. <laughs> That's right. Get, Loving it. That's good. So what we want to do is uh, the question that kind of encompasses the follow-up today. And my role today is I'm going to throw these questions out, let you guys talk about them, and I'm going to give feedback to them too. We want to have Gabe on today because Gabe is Gabe beat me into this world by digging and asking questions and uh, and and made me have to go ask and answer some questions. And so he's uh, farther along in this than I am, um, and he is re- he's well-read, he's a good student, a good theologian, and uh, and he reads the right stuff, and so I um, thought, okay, why not let him speak to some of these as well, and so here's kind of the follow-up question today, what are the gospel of the kingdom implications, not the gospel of salvation, we talk about the gospel of kingdom, because the, the gospel of the kingdom um, is absolutely, um, massively bigger than just merely the atoning work of Christ. Now, that is the centerpiece of the gospel. The work on the cross, the justifying work of Jesus in our place for our sin is absolutely central to the gospel message. But the good news of the kingdom 
covers everything. It's the meta narrative of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That that this Creator God, triune in nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created everything that is, and it is a reflection of His nature and character. And Jesus' work on the cross, we learn in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is also, he, he is restoring all of this stuff back to its identity state. And we get that in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. Where God, God in his great mercy, the Lord Jesus returns, and he wraps up what he gave us to go do in the Great Commission um, by practically in every way causing new creation to sprout forth and come about so that the eternal kingdom of heaven uh, happens on this earth, fully renewed, no sin, and the people of God with the Lord face-to-face forever, Eden restored. So that's the gospel of the kingdom. And so what are the gospel of the kingdom implications? And so this full scope of Jesus redeeming everything back to himself through the finished work on the cross. So that's kind of our, how. what are the implications um, so the first question, um, how does our last episode enhance and magnify this good news? So, so what do you say? Chris, you, 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 you jump us off. And Gabe, you, you go, we'll, we'll, we'll alternate back and forth. Chris, jump us off. How does this last episode enhance? How does it magnify the good news? That's a really good question because I think, the easy answer is, well, everything in Scripture enhances her because it's all pointing to that direction. But right. um, I think it just continues to expand our our scope and our ability to try to understand the immenseness of, number one, who the Lord is, and also the implications of the fall and what that led to. But realizing there's more than just our, the simple Sunday school stories that we hear of creation and then the flood, like, oh, people were bad. We wa- washed them all clean. But there's so many other questions that are left yeah. unanswered. And and so for me, I'm just going to kind of answer this for me, if I can, Absolutely. more of a personal way. Implications are taking a topic or a passage of Scripture like Genesis 6 and then diving into it and trying to unpack that a little bit helps me do that throughout all Scripture. So if I do that on the smaller... I don't want to say it's smaller, minute, as is, as is it's unimportant, because I think anything in there is important. What I mean is compared to the gospel story, thing, other things that kind of we would call bigger parts of Scripture, right? I think people understand what I'm trying to say there. And so by taking those things, understanding what they mean, how to learn more about them, how to use Scripture to support other passages of Scripture, helps me read my Bible better, dive deeper into what it means, and then helps my perspective of the meta narrative as a whole, because then I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean now in light of the gospel in light of Jesus coming and his redemptive work in light of, you know, three rivers talk about KDSC all the time. You know, how, how does it fit into that into our DNA as a church? How does that fit into my life and, and what I'm doing? And so it just gives me a different lens by which to go by. And so, yes. So I say it does enhance and magnify the good news because it helps me have a greater understanding of it. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things it does is highlight the fact that Jesus is redeeming not just humans, but all of creation, including um, setting the heavens right. Now, that doesn't mean the salvation of these entities. I think we learn in Scripture they're not oh, redeemable. No, definitely not. Um, they are, you know, those beings we talked about last week are held in chains of gloomy darkness to um, be for the day of judgment. There is no salvation for them. But what he is doing is setting the heavenlies right also in justice by bringing judgment. Uh, properly so 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 the gospel the gospel not only affects my possibility of being saved it 
it affects the fact that God is exercising justice in the heavenly realms too. And so, and so that, that, that's, a, that's massive because Jesus doesn't just fix the earth. He created the universe, which, okay, yeah. mind-blown for a second. Infinite in nature, but yet created. Yeah. It expands his authority as well. I think yes. it reminds us of, oh, that's of good. the expansiveness of his authority. Maybe that's a better way that's, to say it. That's a great way to say it, Chris, yeah. yes. And, and that's what, that's what my, my point and how it enhances and magnifies the gospel is, is exactly that. Right is that it is the exaltation of Jesus. It is the exaltation of the Messiah and of His atoning work and of His victory over over the world, over principalities, over powers. Right over over every living thing. Right and and that is what is being emphasized. That is what is what is being magnified. It is Christ's victory on the cross? And we'll we'll look at exactly how that happens at Psalm twenty two in a second. But but I completely understand people's adverse reactions to this. Right, because it's weird. And when I first got into it, a, a little over two years ago, I was first introduced to this stuff, and I'm still learning, right? But what is constantly mind blowing to me is that this stuff is in our Bible. Yeah, you don't have to go outside of your Bible to find this, because it's there. Yeah, you just have to look for it. And well, when when you do, you see it there. But more importantly, you also see how it fits into the narrative, and you see its place in the narrative because it is in our Bibles. That's how we know it magnifies the gospel and Christ's yeah. atoning work is because it is in our Bible. And if we truly believe that everything in our Bibles is about the Messiah, is about Jesus, and is about how He fulfills His God's promise to bring about the serpent crusher. Genesis three, right? Because Genesis three is 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 the background. It's the prologue, and it's the prophecy that that defines the structure of everything else after it, right? And so, uh, the narrative of the Bible, right? The fall happens. The 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 man is deceived. Man falls. Brokenness enters into the world. Sins are committed, and and now, in order to fix that, God tells Adam and Eve that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so for the rest of the Bible, when you read it, you're looking for that serpent crusher. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Who is he? But the conflict, the central conflict that is that scripture is about, that the gospel is about, is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent doing battle. Yeah. Right? And so the question needs to be asked, who's the seed of the serpent? We know who the seed of the woman is. Who are we? Who are we fighting against? Who is Jesus fighting against? Who is He destroying? Who is He crushing? Because it's not—it's the seed of the serpent, right? Not the serpent. He crushes the head of the serpent, but He wrestles against the seed of the serpent, right? Right. So who who is that? So we're going to get into that. So, but specifically how this enlightens, and and more so how this magnifies specifically Jesus, right, and His work on the cross, right? You can look at two places. Um, got Psalm twenty-two. Well, well, okay, because that that's our second part yes. here. So, so let me yes. because I want to because you, you made a statement I think is important, and that is we don't have to go outside our Bible. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. So, how does it enlighten places like, yep. like how do you see Psalm twenty two as just, uh, I think a bad theology that says oh, the Father turned his back on Jesus at the cross when. Jesus is not making a theological statement about the Father abandoning him in any stretch. In fact, if you take Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, you have to read Psalm 22.1 in light of the fact that 
if the Father's actively punishing the Son on the cross, He's not absent. Yep. He's present because He's the one doing the punishing of Jesus because of my sin. Yeah. Big deal. Mm-hmm. So the Father doesn't turn His back on the Son. He's actively facing Him, punishing Him. So how do you read Psalm 22 in the light of the fact that it's not making a statement about the, uh, some separation in the Trinity so what is it in Psalm 22 that 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 is related to this, and particularly like just by the fact that he was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, has to we can't ignore that. That's not just some ooh creepy dark black thing. Yeah, and know? it's also more than just oh you look at it and it looks like a skull. Yeah, so there, there is a lot of history to that specific place. Right, so Gabe, you're chomping at the bits. Go with this, yes. and Chris, tell, yes. us, tell us what. <laughs> yeah, he's, over, he's just skipping. I'm, I'm trying to moderate over here, and he's like, "Let's go to number two. <laughs> this junk excites me so That's much. Good. Maybe so cool. we can just leave. And yeah, <laughs> I respect it. Go ahead, Gabe. I'm just messing. Uh, <laughs> we'll go to Gobbler's Knob and get a coffee. <laughs> Gobbler's Knob Cafe. Uh, uh, yes, indeed. All right, go ahead, so, Gabe. Uh, but specifically in, I think I'll, we'll we'll start with Psalm 22. Um, very clearly, Psalm 22 is about the the victory of the Messiah as he's in in the act of suffering, right, to atone for sin, right, like that. That's and it, it the the imagery there of of Christ on the cross is so very clear, right. It talks about his bones are being expo- exposed. He is poured out like water. Um, they cast lots for his garments. It's so very clear. But there's one passage toward there's one verse toward the end that sticks out like a sore thumb, right? And it's it's um, bulls of Bashan open their mouths wide at me, right? What does that mean? And people will say, oh well, they're the Roman soldiers. And I think in a sense, yes, in a sense, yes. But why bulls of Bashan? Yeah, why why did the Holy Spirit inspire bulls of Bashan? Yep. I mean, if there if that is a parallel, and I think it's an appropriate parallel. It is because it's, when you yeah. read it, it's it's almost like Psalm. Well, not almost. Psalm twenty two is giving you a a time a warp, yeah. Picture of what the gospels captured happening at the cross. It's like you're yeah. reading them simultaneously. You're going, oh my gosh, this is happening right here exactly. Yeah. So if there is that parallel, why did the Lord choose bulls of Bashan? Yeah. Well, so for two reasons, um, and it it all goes back to. Jewish, like Hebrew culture and history and cosmology, and also Medi- like uh, Mesopotamian cosmology. And that is Bashan is the region in which the events of Genesis 6 took place. So Mount Hermon, where, where the, the, the entities descended to commit their great sin, that is Bashan. That is the region of Bashan. It was also ruled by, by King Og. Um, who is king of Bashan. King of Bashan. He's a Rephaim. Yeah, who's, who's the descendant yep, of Nephilim. Yep, yep right. exactly. And so Bashan traditionally is, is the kingdom, the earthly kingdom that represents the underworld, right? It's the kingdom of darkness, of evil. It's, it's, it's the kingdom of the enemy, right? Uh, and so bulls of Bashan, bulls were often pictures of, um, uh, of, of demon like idolatry. Like a good example of this is uh, common bull worship especially in Babylon, right? Like they had the way they would offer sacrifices often to, to um, idols of bulls. And even like with Israel, when they made the golden calf, right? Right. Like just that, that kind of bovine imagery is super and, heavy. And even today in, in Hindu <coughs> culture in India, cows are sacred. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're, yep. they're and wh- why that is, I don't know, but it's significant. And the imagery there is the bulls of Bashan are demonic entities. They are beings that spring from this region of Bashan, 
they are the ones who are crucifying Christ. The bulls of Bashan open their mouths as they taunt. Which is one of the reasons why Lewis chose the imagery he chose of the stone table and those, and those, those centaur bull creatures also being bull headed men, uh, that yeah. they captured that he captures in his book being the ones yeah. sacrificing Aslan to the yeah. right witch, who yeah. is a he believes we talked about that last time. So so yeah, that Lewis was not unaware of these connections. No, oh no, he, he was hyper aware. In fact, Lewis is is one of the one of the guys that as I was reading, I recognized he was tracking with this stuff. And the more I read Lewis, the more I read Tolkien too, the more I realized that, oh, uh <laughs> Very many Christian authors and philosophers have been very like Lewis, Tolkien, Calvin, uh, Calvin Tertullian yeah. was yeah. all on board with this stuff, right? But because they read their Bibles, right? Um, all right, so so uh, so Golgotha, hit that one real quick. Yeah, so Golgotha is. I remember the first time I heard of Golgotha, it was somebody like, dude, you need to look up Golgotha because it's called Place of the Skull, and you look at the hill and it looks like a skull, and it's like, yeah, kind of, it just looks like a rock. <laughs> I don't know, but but when when you study Golgotha, what you find out is it does mean place of the skull, right? And so then the question is, what skull? Well, in a lot of um, it's Jewish tradition that when David killed Goliath, he took Goliath's head back to Jerusalem, and in order to ward off the enemy and as a sign of Yahweh's dominance over the giants that inhabited the land. David placed Goliath's head on a spit on this specific hill, on this rock, because it was very high. And so what the, the significance here and the imagery here is that when Christ is being crucified on Golgotha, he is performing his act of atonement. He is, he is doing the thing that is, he, he is literally crushing the head of the serpent. Right, because in, in the story of David and Goliath, serpentine imagery is very heavy when discussing Goliath. It is very clear that we are to associate Goliath and snake. Goliath and serpent are right. very closely intertwined. And so you now have Christ being crucified in the act of literally crushing the head of the serpent. He is being crucified on top of the head of yeah. the serpent. Yeah. And that's the imagery there. That's but, pretty wild. And and again, I mean, you only get that when you understand that Goliath is meant to be meant to be more than just a really big dude. Right. And and, right. and the fact that he was beheaded by David. Yeah. Uh, all that. Exactly. That, yeah. That 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 stuff. Exactly. Yeah. That that stuff right. matters. All right. So, Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think another, and I you know, just following up with the Golgotha part, like the furthermore, if you look at the other side too, Jesus is constantly referred to as Son of David. Right, there's connections. He's he's oh, yeah. through David's line, oh, yeah. and so it's not just the fact that Goliath and and the the skull meaning yeah. Golgotha there. Golgotha also translates into Calvary, where we get Mount yeah. Calvary from, um, and so and through some other interpretations. Yeah. Um, some people refer to you know the skull is basically a dead head, so Christ being the head, referring to him dying for a sin. Like there's so many different interpretations oh, yeah. of that. Um, others just refer to it as it's just a hill. <laughs> which certainly it was, yeah, right. but um, it's also a place where um, it symbolizes authority and Christ inserting his authority in being put to death um, as the head of the church and as the head of um, really Christianity as a whole. So there's just, there's you're right, there's so much depth mm-hmm. there that we tend to just overlook. We're just like, yeah. oh, um, oh yeah, Golgotha, like your skull. Yeah, it could yeah. be, it, and then you're right, that you can make interpretations of like, oh, it looks like a skull. Uh, but I think, I think it's wrong to just ignore 
the depth of that, especially yeah, when yeah. we see yeah. we have Jesus quoting Psalm 22 here. We have, and, and Jesus was known to quote the, the, the Hebrew Bible quite a lot, right? Because he knew it very well. And he so, inspired it. So. Yeah, yeah. He helped write it. Basically, he wrote it. So, um, so that's why I, Again, it comes back to that meta narrative, and yeah, we, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna continue to drive that home because we just Old Testament's not just thrown out like we don't just throw it out. Yeah. It, but he's and that's why it's it's not he didn't come to end that Old Testament and start a new one. Well, he came to fulfill it. Yeah, and I think understanding that language here is important too. Um, Psalm twenty two is great because we see David talking about suffering and about pain and and. But he never loses his faith, right? It's right, it's yeah. it's that feeling of almost feeling abandoned yeah, or yeah. left. But 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 as you read on, you know, he talks about, yeah. but you never left me, and, and yeah. you were there. And and I think that that same thing with Jesus here. He's calling on that because it's not. You're right. He's not looking at and saying, "Oh my gosh, my father has just completely abandoned me." Right. No, yeah. he knew the Lord was there with him, but it was that that feel. He had to. He came to Earth to be human to to die physically and to suffer physically, emotionally. Right. So he had those same feelings. And, and I know yeah. even probably some of our <laughs> listeners, I think we've, we've all, I think it's just a common Christian feeling, right? At some point we have that feeling of Lord, you, you didn't answer my prayer. I, pr- I prayed with everything I had for months and months and months for you to take this disease away from a loved one or to give us a child or to give me that job or to pull us out of the situation, right? There's so many examples especially as you get older in life and you've had the more experiences of there's a feeling of abandonment. I think our faith reminds us, okay, we know he didn't abandon us. Right. Um, but because we're taught to just, we'll pray and we'll receive because we just get those words sometimes that they don't always mean, we don't mean you're going to receive exactly what you're asking for. Yeah. And so, um, there's a lot of imagery there. <laughs> Psalm 22, so much. um, and, and, and Christ dying on the cross that we could probably have yeah. two or three episodes oh, on yeah. that. Uh, but again, I think all that goes back to just uh, enlightening our understanding and enhancing the gospel. And these are just two examples, just uh, two many, examples yeah. of how of how of how having a proper framework for implications of Genesis six truly enlighten and magnify the cross. There's there are a myriad. Our Bible is full of them. Yeah. Um, and what's what? Just is it just not to get too philosophical? I don't want to go down the branch of philosophy too far right here, but the reality is our, even our mythos, we talked about mythology doesn't equal untrue. It is yep. it is a, a collection of stories that represent true things in culture. Mm-hmm. And, and and what I find fascinating here is, is because we have lost the art of reading because of naturalism and deconstruction, literary deconstruction, I don't mean deconstructing faith, literary deconstruction, we've lost the art of reading and understanding even fictional works that have at their root a grain of reality. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. Like, there's no such thing as something that exists that doesn't have a root in something that's real. That's why it exists. And I know that's an ontological argument. But but even at the at the core of fiction, like, you could take Marvel movies. There is a, there is a core of reality that there is, there is a conflict, and there are heroes, and there are villains. And that's telling a story because you can't have conflict hero and villains without there being conflict hero and villains. Otherwise, there would be no story to tell. Is that, right. is that trekking? Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and so, when you have across cultures these stories of bulls representing entities and powers and being worshipped in other cultures, and it's right there in the middle of Psalm twenty-two, bulls of Bashan. 
don't just overlook it. And what yeah. we have a tendency to do, because either we're not curious or we've, we've lost the art of reading, we just, uh, well, we bulls of Bashan, we skip over it. Yeah. And we ask, well, why bulls? What does that mean? Yeah. Why Bashan? And, yeah. and so when you start yeah. asking these questions, it makes you makes you look. And, and then Og, king of Bashan, oh, he's Rephaim. Oh, and then you start, oh, my goodness. So yeah. th- there's a there's something being said here that this conflict, this seed of the woman versus this, the serpent, and the yeah. seed of the serpent, yeah. the sin of the serpent, and conflict, yeah. and this is it. So we got to move on. Yeah. Others will have a four-hour podcast. And people people will, will, will read over those things. And right. they think, well, if, the, if, the, if it was important, the Bible would explain it more. It's like, no, 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 no. The Bible does explain it, but yeah. it also, because of who it is written by and to, there right. are assumptions that yeah. the author, that the readers are going to know what is being said when it says Rephaim. So yeah. that's where we have to do our due diligence as 21st century Christians and try to study what these things are so that we can put ourselves in the framework of the people who wrote them so that we can understand these it's passages. the art of reading and reading carefully. Yeah. All right, so yeah. how, number three, how does this highlight the Great Commission? So how does this, Chris, highlight the Great Commission for us? Why? Is the Great Commission, do you see it differently? Yeah, a little bit. I, I mean, well, maybe not a little bit. It's not the right way. But, I mean, Great Commission, I think, number one, I think it should create a greater sense of urgency mm. um, on our parts. And, number two, I think it helps us realize, well, there's a lot more at, at stake here. Like Because, again, it brings us back to there's just more than just the souls of people that are at stake. There's more that Christ is going to fulfill in the end than what, human minds can really comprehend, at least not comprehend easily. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, number one, I just, we could talk about this all day too, but I mean, it just as a reminder, Great Commission is not a suggestion. Like it's not multiple yeah. choice. Like it's, there's a reason that he's saying go because, and, and I, I picture that him saying this with a sense of urgency in his voice. To me, that's how I kind of view it is like Christ is like, like, go (laughs) we need to be making disciples because if we don't make disciples then people are going to be deceived and they're going to be turned away and if you're not going and speaking the message and you're not going and teaching the truth then they're going to follow someone else yeah yeah Yeah. and and that's very surface level no that's good no that's right i think it starts there wait they are being they are that's right somebody's going to teach them and they've already been taught they're disciples of what jesus said in john 8 their father, the devil, who's a liar and the father of lies. So they're disciples of the serpent. Yeah. And so there's a component in the Great Commission. All, all authority in heaven and earth, in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go now, make disciples. So because he possesses this authority in the heavenlies, now he sends us now um, to, mm-hmm. to go and engage in this task. And, and, and you guys have been around Three Rivers long enough to know we the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, is not rooted in some new idea Jesus cooks up on the spots. Hey, this resurrection thing worked out pretty you know, good. It'll be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why don't we franchise the sucker? Let's go global. Yeah. I and mean, this is Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the original intent. You got the fall. Um, you got multiple rebellions, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11, and, and, and this spreading out of the nations because of their continued rebellion. Uh, some Psalm 82 implications there. Oh, yeah. And then the very next chapter in Genesis 12, God appoints Father Abraham of faith, the one who we are descendants of we are by faith, to go now and be the emissary to all these nations. He just scattered yeah. from Genesis chapter 11. That's not accidental. It's in nope. the text on purpose that way. And so great commission implications, right? And, and so concise, jolly, concise. Yeah, so... And, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that boy, the, that's that? a pot yeah. calling the kettle yeah. black right yeah, here. Yeah, right. Like, uh-huh. Take after it naturally. I want to get struck. Uh, <laughs> 
and I've already been hit by lightning once in my okay, life. Okay. May, number okay, two yeah, may happen. Yeah, yeah, so y'all yeah, better yeah. spread out here. <laughs> y'all should go to Gobbler's Knob because I'm not gonna let that one go. <laughs> no, you shouldn't either. Um, I'm in, not letting you edit any of that out because that's just no, too. Please good. don't. I'm gonna say it about every ten minutes in the yeah. podcast. In my notes, I have uh, the Great Commission equals the D-Day of the war against the enemy, which <laughs> so, so I like that a lot. But like when when we when we put the Great Commission in the in like a Genesis 11 framework, and but also in a knowledge, but also in like in a Matthew 28 framework, where we realize that all authority has been given um, to Jesus. Right, He holds the authority, uh, but the authority w- is taken away from. By way of Psalm 82, it is taken away from these these beings in Genesis 11 to whom authority is given in Genesis 11. Psalm 82, uh, Yahweh tells them it will be taken away from them. When we get to Matthew 28, we see it being taken away from them and given to Christ. And then Christ says, now that I have authority, it is your job to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, do, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And people will talk about spiritual warfare, right? And, and I feel like especially in... in where we like in our world today in American Christianity, spiritual warfare gets talked of like it's it's very it's more emotional, right? It's like man, there's a lot of spiritual warfare today. Like I'm feeling sad, like this, whatever it is, and, and that's true. That's part of it, right? It's like how the enemy attacks the mind and emotions and heart of the individual. But in a more broader sense and context, it is a literal war, right? With literal physical boundaries and borders, right? And when you go to make disciples in a hard place, you are li- <laughs> like you're being. I mean, you're 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 the band of brothers of 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 the war against the enemy, right? You're parachuting into enemy territory, and you're there to make disciples. And so, how do we wage the war against the kingdom of darkness? Is by making disciples, mm. right? That's our weapon. The gospel is our weapon. Discipleship is the battle. Mm. Right? That's how we take ground against the enemy for the kingdom, right? Is mm. by is by through our domain subduing it for the kingdom. And making disciples, and so the Great Commission, it's it's it, it is the act of war against the enemy, mm-hmm. um, and it's God's command. Right, yeah. like we are, we're given a command by our by our officer, and it's our job to go and, and execute it, so that so that we may be victorious through Christ through making of disciples. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when we look at it through that lens of war, I think it gives more credence and more oomph, if you will to verses like Acts 1-8 when he says, yeah. you will receive power yeah. when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll yeah. be my witnesses. It's, it's not like you're, it, it's not just confidence. I think that's what, I think yeah. when I hear that verse used a lot, it's more of a, yeah. you're going to be confident to yeah. share the gospel. But to me, yeah. I think it's more of kind of go, coming in since I'm Ephesians 6, kind of right. like, no, you're going to, like, you're going to need this. Yeah. And I'm sending right. this through yeah. my helper, the Holy Spirit to you. Yeah. And, and you're going to receive right. it because you cannot, succeed right. without this right. power and authority that I've been given that I'm giving to you now. And I'll get to some Ephesians six and some other examples later on and a couple of our other points. But I just, I think it just puts that into a greater context of this is, this is a war and it's, and it's not going to come yeah. easily or right. lightly. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. I mean, and we need, we need power because discipleship is more than just trying to convince people that Jesus loves them. Right. Like we are, it, it's a, it is a war against powers and entities that are, desperately attacking us and attempting to wrench people away from that message. Yeah. And so we need power because we're fighting against beings with power. And it's coming against the devastation of idolatry, which is so easy to, yeah. we, we, we hit it as we're studying through Exodus, you know, yeah. idolatry, like yeah. we foolishly believe that these people were 
numbskulls who set up wood, stone, or metal images and worship them. And what we fail to recognize is, is how that happens. If, if you cut off, if you cut these entities off, what we fail to see is how they've ripped off the beauty of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and, and God's relationship to man and turned it its bizarro world. Yeah. And so these entities are animated through these things. And so when people believe and follow and worship these entities, they make, like you study Baal, Baal, and, and some of the Canaanite religions, these, these wood, stone, or metal images were the manifestation of this entity. And by engaging in the ritual, um, the entity came into that I, that thing and manifested itself through it, which is which is why you'll read some of the things about these idols open their mouths and all of this stuff is is they are coming into this thing that people make to represent what they represent, and so what that is is bizarro bizarro Christianity because what happens is the spirit of the living God, the true God, comes into us and animates us, yeah. and He brings us to life, and we become the objects of we become the objects who worship the Lord Jesus, yeah. and so what idolatry does it it, it, it takes it takes it's a perversion it's a perversion of, of the kingdom of God. Do. It's the yeah. upside down bizarro of everything yeah. God created to yeah. be. And so the Great Commission is us entering into. So when we go into these places, we work and we we see some of these things, and we go into these temples and we we visit some of these sites. Like I got last year when we were there in July, and we we're going to this place and. You know, I was I was telling the guys, you know, we're gonna be very respectful when we're in here, but when you walk into these places, like you whisper, mm-hmm. you whisper against them, you call on the Lord Jesus, who is the creator of all things, and you ask him to come in power and crush this garbage. And, because yeah. it's holding people in bondage to 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 false worship and to yeah. all manner of sin that comes as a result of that false worship. So come in here, let's do war. And and that that is exactly why having this kind of Genesis 6 framework is important because yeah. you can walk into those temples and you can carry you know with happening. you the power of the name of Christ. But if yeah. you don't have this framework, you yeah. walk in there and say, ah, it's just idols, it's just wood. And you get and hit you, you get yeah. hit back too. And yeah. I can tell personal yeah. testimony. Like this past yeah. this past year was the worst trip I've ever been on in my life with just a constant continual continual conflict. So that uh that that leads us to um um let's go Matthew sixteen. Matthew sixteen, right? Yeah. So um Peter's declaration seen in a different light. So yeah. this this happens. It's easy to miss where this happens. Yes. Um, and so we were actually talking about this in our elders meeting last week. John and uh, Jim were reading and studying, and, yeah. and they were both up. Good. They're and, learning. And John was asking some questions, and, and so he went, was like, oh, my gosh, Mount Hermon. I'm like, yeah. It kind of makes you see this. Yeah. So Matthew 16, what's happening in Matthew 16? Yeah. This is one of my favorite examples because right. I have very, very close friends who are very near and dear to my heart who are very Catholic. <laughs> and for them, this passage is the only place in Scripture where they can try to come up with an explanation for the papacy. And what's so beautiful about this passage is not only does it, you know, kind of wreck that, but it also, <laughs> it also, it also paints a more beautiful picture of the Great Commission and Christ's work on the cross. And so where this is in Matthew 16 um, is Caesarea Philippi, right? So Caesarea Philippi uh, is, has several names. It's got like the Grotto of Pan, um, uh, the Gates of Bashan, also Mount Hermon. So where we are in Caesarea Philippi, they're at the base of Mount Hermon, which again is ground zero for all of this stuff, right? The sons of God descend on Mount Hermon. They interbreed with human women and then bring which, forth a Nephilim. Can, can, I, can, I, can I interrupt you there and ask you, the, where do we find that information, that specific detail? Yes, now, yes. Did, now, 
this is a whole different conversation. We can't have it now. But yeah. where where do we find that it's an extra biblical text? Yes. But yeah. it's a, but this extra biblical text is quoted in the New Testament. Yeah. By yeah. Two and authors. So so, so it, this this story is found in the Book of Enoch, which um, is is a is a. It's a non- second, second temple Jewish text, but right. what's very important about it is while it itself is not biblically canon and it's not inspired, that does not mean that it does not contain truth. Because it's because, quoted and cited by Peter and Jude. it is quoted Jude. by Jude and Peter right. as they're discussing God's condemnation of these beings. Correct. Right. So obviously this is a biblical worldview because it's what our Bible tells us is a biblical it's worldview. It's not canonical, but it's quoted by the canonical text to support, to its, support truth. its truth. Yes. So we know, we know this event happened, and it, right. it happened where Jesus is saying this. Correct. But more importantly, again, at the Grotto of Pan, the, the gates of Bashan, it's a cave right in this town, which traditionally was itself an entrance to the underworld, Right. So the gates of Bashan, or the gates of hell. So what Jesus is saying is he is approaching the rock of Mount Hermon, and he's saying, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not withstand it. Ooh, come on now. He's not propping Peter up as the spiritual authority to lead the church in Christ's absence. He is openly declaring war and defying the authority of the supernatural beings that have plagued Galilee and have plagued the world for centuries. Yeah. He is standing in front of the gates of hell, yeah. saying the gates of hell will not withstand his church. And where is he building his church? He's starting his ministry where it all began. Yeah. He's going to ground zero and saying, this is mine. Yeah. You don't own it anymore. This is my story. I'm taking it over for my church, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's believed also that when Jesus is transfigured with Peter, James, and John, it is on Mount Hermon, yeah. not the Mount of Olives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so that that is, for me, the best example of how this worldview magnifies the gospel. Yeah, right. Because when you miss that worldview, you get the papacy. When you have that worldview, you have arguably the yeah. one of the coolest passages, one of the coolest things Jesus ever said. It's incredible. I just say to our Catholic friends who may watch or listen to Theology in the Dirt, come on over and join us. It's okay. <laughs> I know you love Jesus, and I think many of you believe the gospel. Yes, I want to invite we you love to come you over so much. We love you. I love so, you, Evan and Micah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Chris, tell us, tell us what you what are you hearing in this man, and what do you what do you think? Well, he literally just said every bit of notes that I have <laughs> is almost <laughs> word for word somehow. So that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Although but I did, you gave us gobbler's knobs. <laughs> well, I've never felt more proud of being in a podcast called Theology in the Dirt than that compliment there. That so, made my day. Like that's like, what I'm here that's for. That's the highlight of my day. Yeah, I'm glad. I'll be saying that forever. Subway, if you'd make that into a turkey sandwich name, <laughs> you could better get, send me some royalties because that'd be epic. That would be around epic. Thanksgiving time. Yes, indeed. Um, now nah, I, yeah, this is so cool. Like. Jesus is like literally right here, the symbol of Satan's wickedness and deceptions and where principalities rebelled. I'll build my church. Like in other words, the church of Jesus Christ would be raised up on the tattered and broken remains of defeated foes, the devil, his angels and their schemes. And I, and I wrote here in my notes, I put it, if that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what does. That's some Braveheart level stuff there. Like I just like, like him riding on this horse with some paint on be like, I would build my church (laughs) (laughs) on your face in your, (laughs) in your hometown. And your, so it's, um, 
from yeah. you know, but again, from like the beginning of recorded history, biblical history until now, like the the reality of spiritual war is evident, right? It's from the temptation of the serpent in the garden to the sons of God coming into the daughters of uh, men in Genesis six to the act of principalities over whole regions mentioned in Daniel to the explosion of warfare in the Gospels. You know, Jesus encountered many unclean spirits and demons. There's just no doubt there's an unseen world and an unseen war in which believers are involved. And I just add that in there because, like, to me, this is like understanding that context. And again, it comes back to just reading our Bibles and, and, and we'll get a lot of, there'll be probably be some people watching this who aren't normal followers who, Oh, they quoted book of Enoch sinners. Cause that, that's somebody said that in the Genesis six one, they were like something about your Bible as, as quotes if, Enoch. Right. And I was like, so it just, you know, but again, it's anything to kind of yeah. prove someone's point or their, their interpretation yeah. of that. But yeah, I mean, but is there, like, honestly, this really connects to me going back to our last point, the Great Commission, right? It's like Jesus didn't go on to, like, this safe mountainside of, like, no. you know, people bringing him grapes and, you know, wine. <laughs> and he's chilling on, like, this beautiful thing. I mean, he's like, no, where is the worst of yeah. everything? Where Where is the enemy at? Yeah, I'm going to plant my flag yeah. right in the mm. middle of your field and so, and build yeah. my church and my believers on this, yeah, and, and you will, and, and you're going to lose. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and what's crazy yeah. about the geography of this area is where he is, where Caesarea Philippi is. It is, in, it's in the single largest field of giant crypts in the world, mm-hmm. basically. So this, it's a, it's literally a giant graveyard. It's a demon graveyard. Yeah. So he's in, well, in the midst of it, saying, "This is uh, where I'm starting." Yeah, and, and it gives us great confidence that, that we, as his emissaries, as his ambassadors who have the Holy Spirit, yeah. um, can go and plant his flag in hard places. Oh, yeah, because he went yeah. to one of the hardest places. Yeah, that's where he started. He goes yeah. there to ground zero and says, this is where we're starting, boys, and, and I've all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, so let's get after yeah. it. Yeah. And he let them see his glory on that mountain. So Peter Jane, he told them, like, don't say anything about this till after I've been raised. And yeah. when I do, though, yeah. get after it. And man, that that lets us know. Even in this building right here, we've set a we planted a flag. Yeah, that just destroys the prosperity gospel, though. If you think about it, it does, doesn't man. it? Though, yeah, I was like, you know what? Yeah, you, you know what? Just follow me. But I'm going. This is where I'm going. This is where I want yeah. you to come. That's yeah. right. And and there's no yeah. there's no big mansions and and private jets and yeah. and there's going to be some sickness and some injuries and some famine yeah. and some tough times. But this right. is where I'm at, and so mm. if you want to come after God. me, you have to come here. And man, that just yeah. like that just to me just wrecks any thought of not just prosperity gospel, but any any gospel. Or, and I don't even hate when to use the word gospel. But any message that preaches things are going to be good or easy from how yeah. we view them. Yeah, we can't look at that right. and still feel the same way when you understand the yeah. context yeah. of Matthew 16 yeah. or, or any ministry of the church that is just toward padding our own comfort level anymore. But mm-hmm. Jesus himself planted the flag of the kingdom and the hard stuff and said, now get after these, this is mine. All creation is mine. Now go take it back. Yeah. Um, and, and so yeah. man, that, that, that's a game changer because it's yeah. wearying. We get sick and tired of the constant battle and, and the Lord said, no, I'm building my church right here. So if you're here and all hell is breaking loose, I'm here too. Yeah, because keep in mind, the place where Jesus is is the place that the Hebrews were afraid of in Joshua. Yeah, It's ground zero for the bad guys. Yeah. The plate, when they go in there and see the giants that they don't want to go yeah, in we, there, no, no. That, that's that's where Jesus is. It's yeah. lit, It's the worst of the worst. And he's saying, this is where my church will start. 
Yeah, and ten of them like, no, nah, we got to go back to Egypt. And two's like, no, nah, we got to go in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, but yeah. but that kind of tells you too. Like it, it's always kind of probably going to be that way. You know, not that literally yeah. ten to two, but you know, we we're talking about we're going to do the hard thing or the easy thing. Well, ten's going to go. Let's go the easy thing, and ten's going to be like, no, let's let's charge on, and yeah. that's probably. Yeah. Well, it will always work out. Yeah. All right, we we let's uh let, let's slide on to let's slide on to history because I, I yes. think we've uh, what yeah. can we say? Does history speak to this? Like if if history is the Lord's, like if if God is writing all of history, mm-hmm. not just redemptive history, but all of history, if He's the sovereign God of the universe, um, does history say anything about this? Like so, Chris, what do you does history speak to this in any matter form, or is history its own separate domain? and got anything to do with Jesus? Well, I mean, it all does, right? <laughs> I guess that's the simple yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, I, I know Gabe's got some good examples there. Um, the history major. I know, course. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll listen to him on some of those specific examples. But, I mean, everything from, you know, biblical accounts of, like, the flood. And, uh, I mean, there's there's the historical context and proof that we continue to find throughout the earth, right? That we find physical yeah. evidence that certain people existed, certain yeah. areas existed that are listed in the Bible. So, I mean, we find more and more proof that that's true. Um, but even diving into things like there's so many origins of things like witchcraft and Satanism and why those things came to be. You guys talked about the bulls uh, earlier in that imagery. Yeah. Like all that is throughout history and it's just been, there's just different examples that might have a different look or a different face or this yeah. religion might use a different animal. Um, there's different accounts of those things. But even then, like, you know, we used the flood conversation last week of like, yeah. well, if the flood wiped out everything, why? How are there still Nephilim yeah. like existing? And like, you know, did they die and respawn, or <laughs> like, or did they hide? You know, like, yeah. or were they just around because they weren't people? Like, there's a lot of yeah. questions still unanswered, yeah. but there's a lot of that through history. But again, it all continues to point back to, uh, to Jesus' redemptive work and, and and the process of that. Right? Not like that's not just a quick thing. Sure, he could. He could Thanos things and snap his yeah. finger and, and everything come. That's that's underselling the power of his story yeah. uh, through history. Yeah. And so, um, but Gabe, I know you got some like several examples over there. So I want to I want you to share some of that. Yeah. So I mean, Dad, you, a while ago you mentioned talking about how mythos is closer to reality than we would like to give it credit for. And the the, the very best defense for that argument is the very fact that our Bible and myth tell the same story. Right. Right, so like Genesis, the Enuma Elish, and and like the Emerald Tablets of of Thoth and Egypt all tell the same story, and that sounds really freaky for Christians, but it tells the same story, and the like the gist of that story is a being created everything, he created mankind, mankind broke it, right. Then the gods come down, they, you know, do some janky stuff, then giants are born, giants create a massive, flourishing, magical civilization that spreads throughout the world, and the gods are the ones that, that run it, they walk with mankind. Then something happens, it goes south, and a catastrophe involving water destroys everything but a man is preserved with his family. And then the world history picks up after that. That's the story. Yeah. Obviously, there are deviations depending on the culture. Whether it's Gilgamesh or... Right, but yeah, that's yeah. the story. And that's 
unprecedented. Yeah. And what what's crazy though is now we're finding evidence for that. But specifically with with the Egyptians, they their pre flood, their antediluvian history, they call it Zeptepi. They have a name for it. Mm-hmm. Right? Which means the, the beginning time or the, the first time. Right. And then the uh, the Babylonians have the Enuma Elish, right, which is their creation epic, and they tell the same story, right, right, which is that the gods walked with mankind and they built this great civilization that was destroyed. Um, and what's crazy is when I was a kid, you know, I remember hearing for the first time that oh my gosh, the Chinese have a flood myth, the the Babylonians have a flood myth. I remember, the, oh wow, flood myth is universal, but what that never gets talked about is how the cause for the flood is also universal. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is the, res- like the breeding of, of divine and man was not a good thing. Right. That's also the cause, mm-hmm. but that rarely gets ever talked about in Christian circles because it's weird, but it's in our Bibles and it's true. And the, the cause of the flood is, is so important because it is it it sets the stage for the bad things that happen in in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Joshua as Israel butts heads with these civilizations that are trying desperately to get back to the time before the flood to practice those things to glorify those things to glorify cannibalism right to glorify incest and, 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 and human sacrifice and the worship of demons and witchcraft, these evil, horrible things that are condemned in Leviticus, they're condemned because they are the remnant of the pre-flood world. Right. That's what the world pre-flood looked like, but worse. So it was destroyed. And so the reason these things are condemned and the reason why Israel is told to go in and clean house is because these cultures themselves are governed by Nephilim giants or they're ruled by the gods that facilitated those practices pre-flood. Yeah. Which historically also helps us understand, too, that the conquest of Canaan is not a call on the Lord's part of, to genocide. There's right. not a calling to kill humans. Yeah. He is sending them in against Og, king of yeah. Bashan, yeah. these Rephaim who are yeah. connected back to the Nephilim, and this culture yeah. that's rooted right. in this god-awful practice of yeah. horrible things that are no longer image-bearers, but they are they're this this god awful thing that has now created all this horrible stuff on the earth, which the Lord said to Noah's like this has got to go. Yeah, Canaan Canaan is a remnant of the pre flood world. Right. So of course God sends Israel to destroy them because He sent a flood to destroy it once. Yeah, but that didn't get the job done. He's like, all right, I want you to go in there and kill everybody. So He sends Every the flood man, of his woman, people. and child. Right, get in there, get rid of them. Yeah, and and then obviously you know we see how that works out, but but. All that to say is when you miss the Genesis 6 narrative, the attack on Christianity, if your God is your God is evil, your God is this, your God is that, because he ordered the genocide of, of innocent people, it's like, whoa. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Genocide, yes, but why? Yeah, well, it's, it, well, I would even say it's not even genocide anymore because you're not dealing with mere people anymore. You're right, exactly, because they're not even human. They're not human right. anymore, right. Yeah. And I know that's weird for people. This is really strange for people who have read their Bible with a naturalistic lens. But yeah. And the strange, this is not new to Christianity. This yeah. isn't some Johnny-come-lately thing. This takes you back yeah. to Augustine, 
Um, yep. I mean, you got in the church fathers. This was common understanding. Justin Martyr, Tertullian Justin Martyr, talked about yeah. all this stuff. And and the thing though is, a lot of people will look at it it's like, well, why doesn't our Bible or tell us they're giants? Like it does. It does For, tell us. They're in giants. the same way though, that, our, that Jesus never says, "I am God." Right. He never says that, but he communicates it in a much more beautiful way, but also in a way that that comes with some presuppositions. Right. Right. And so our Bible communicates this truth to us by telling things like, and the Israelites went up and fought these people who were who were descendants of the right. Anakim or descendants of these people, and you trace that lineage and you realize, oh, okay, these people are the the grandchildren, the great gen- grandchildren of this person who was a Nephilim. Right. Right. And so you see that the culture is disseminated. Like, disseminated through right all right so so we we got we're up on we're up on really close so we're gonna um we're not we're we're gonna do science we might have to come back and do science i think science worth getting into but magic and witchcraft let's close there so 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 chris speak to us about what do you see what is magic and witchcraft like is this just a you know hasbro board game ouija board or or is there more going on when it comes to these unseen things well, I mean, I think it's important to realize that you know, when we're talking about magic witchcraft, witchcraft in this setting, that's not of the Lord, right? This was created by um, the enemy as a way to sort yeah. of thwart the practices or at least come against to bring it down um, to change what was originally created for life and what life with the Lord to be to make it um, something that it's not, right, in order to turn us away from the Lord. Right. And we see that from the get-go with, uh, and I, I think even with Satan, right, because I think how many, how many times do we continue to see images of Satan as this, like, red, full-looking guy, guy with horns and tail and, like, something ugly when when he's, but part of his schemes and his witchcraft is to, to appear appealing, even as a it's serpent enticing, in the yeah. garden. Right. He, like, we, if we saw a snake in the garden and we're not going, oh, what do they have to say, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, where's, right. Where's, where's something to kill this joker, right? right? But somehow he made himself, even in the form of a serpent, appealing to Eve to, to convince her right. to, to at least even listen to him in the first place, right? Yeah. And so, that, again, very simple answer. Um, but we see that all throughout, especially in the Old Testament. You start looking at, um, you know, even in uh, Exodus, right, we've got these um, – We've got these guys who work for Pharaoh, right, who are trying to, you know, they're doing this witchcraft. They're trying to, like, well, your God can turn staff into this. Right. We can do this as well. We can we can do these tricks to show that our gods are just as powerful yeah. as your God. And, 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 and Yahweh kind of allows some of that for a while, just a little back and forth. And so kind of playing it can helps. Yeah, but, it, but, yeah. Even, but obviously that was enough to convince Pharaoh, nah, I'm not letting my, my slaves go. Like, I'm not going to do that. My, even my people can pull that off. Um, you get into Kings and, you know, Elijah and Elisha. Um, there's just so many other things that are happening where there's this use of magic or witchcraft or whatever you want to call it to conjure up these false gods right. to put them on a place that they do provide. They provide the rain. They're, you know, if we do this, rain comes. If we do this, food will come. And um, all, all to get something, and that's just been perverted and twisted from our relationship with Yahweh and what that's supposed to be like. Magic is being used to do that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah. I know you got some, yeah, good so stuff too. Then, like, because of this stuff, what, like, what is magic? What is witchcraft? Is it real? Yes, mm-hmm. right, because our Bible tells us that it's real. Right, like and, a, a and, crime and would not be punishable by death, right? Unless there was a legit problem, like there was something wrong with it. And the little right. slave girl in Philippi is kept, yeah. who had this spirit of 
telling the future. It's coming up with Paul and it's going, hey, these are servants of the Most High God. And she got annoying. They yeah. cast this yeah. spirit out. And of course, Jesus' ministry is full of dealing with beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We don't need to get down the rabbit hole what these beings yeah. specifically are in the... Um, uh, for the chart of different beings in the heavenly realms, but um, but magic and witchcraft, like it, it's yes, I think the Bible affirms it's real. Yeah, yeah, and it, and, it's, and it? it's something that that when, when you when you study, I, I I spent some time over break studying the origins of a lot of um, historically the the origins of a lot of modern occult practices. Like where did they originate? How did they come about? And what I discovered was they all have their origin in the same place like the the, the freemasons the um, what the, uh, oh, the templars oh, oh yeah uh-huh. <laughs> the the freemasons the the hermetic order of the golden dawn the the rosicrucians the and the all these things that are these medieval organizations that have seeped into the world today and things like uh, you probably heard of skull and bones uh, was was famous back in the day, and all these are traditions of forbidden knowledge, right, or, or hidden knowledge, yeah. right? And so esoteric, esoteric knowledge, right? knowledge yeah. right? And so when, so esoteric, right, it just means like otherworldly, otherworldly knowledge. Um, but what you get into it is there's another word, hermetic, right? And that word, obviously, it, it's it's Hermes. And so when you study the traditions of a lot of these 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 orders of um, of, of hidden knowledge, you realize they have their sources in two places, in ancient Greece yeah. and ancient Egypt. Um, and that is with um, Hermes and Thoth, who are the two, <laughs> the Egypt and Greek god of knowledge right. and healing, which is fascinating, hmm. which is very interesting. And you kind of preached on how the boils is an attack on uh, the ability of the Egyptian gods to heal. And part of me wonders if if Thoth was under attack there. I would not be surprised if that was the case. But but besides the fact that is one of the deities. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. I didn't want to go too far down the rabbit hole yeah. mentioning their. I names, was curious yeah, yesterday as I was listening. I was wondering, but but Pantheon. but what you find is a lot of Greek magic and witchcraft is traced back to people who worship Hermes, and a lot of your Egyptian rooted. Uh, esotericism is is traced back to Thoth, but what's very interesting is when the Greeks, um, when they interacted with Egypt, they discovered that uh, Thoth and Hermes were the same entity. They were the same being. Like when they performed their rituals, they discovered it was the same same entity that was just working in two different places. And so then Hermes took on a new ah, I can't remember, uh, uh, Hermes Trismegistus. That's what it is, which is Hermes the thrice renowned. Um, don't know why three. I haven't been able to figure that out yet. But dark imitation of the real three. I think so. Yeah. That's, that's well, that's and, and even at its core, magic yeah. witchcraft is basically manipulation of the unseen exactly. in order yeah. to get us yeah. to believe something. Exactly. And it and that sounds a lot yeah. like faith if we're not careful. Yeah, and it it is. That, which is, is an intentional yeah. of t- an intentional parallel on behalf yeah. of the evil one. Again, yeah, it goes back good. to that yeah. strategy and that scheme. Yeah. It's meant to look the same. Yeah but maybe provide something that yeah. might be a little bit more believable. Yeah. And if we give it an image like they did back yeah. in like biblical times and even still in a lot of the, the religions we have today, if we give it an image and a face, yeah. it's much more believable. Yeah, and, and, and good, what's, what's scary is you see a lot of this practice of magic seeping into to popular culture now. 
because back in the day it was it was very kind of it, it was way back in ancient history it was very pop like the wise ones right the super the not they, they were the philosophers of the day but they were the ones who were practicing this forbidden knowledge right that was like you get into Eleusis with the Greeks and then you have your Egyptian priests right the way they would interact with their gods was through ancient rituals that were taught to them and preserved from again it's that it's that pre-flood culture yeah. Right. And so magic is is how cultures are able to interact with that world and get in touch with that world. And that and that involved the use of a lot of psychedelics. Right. And so that raises a lot of other questions about what happens when you enter into the world of psychedelics. And which is all the rage in certain worlds. Right. right now. And, and, like, and that's part of that's part of why we're in the 60s. Right. Yeah. 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 But that's part of why the psychedelics craze is so scary, because people are encountering these beings. And to them, they seem very benevolent and good and kind of like, oh, it healed this, it healed that. And like, of course it did. I doubt Eve thought the serpent was doing something like yeah. Eve probably thought the saint was just trying to help. But then look what happened with that. And so you, you so what what magic is, is it's humans tinkering with these 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 entities who do not have their best interest at heart. They have right. been deceived into thinking that these e- beings they encounter are good and they're helping them, they're serving them, they're giving me this, they're giving me that. My life was better, it healed me of this. Of course it did. Of course, why wouldn't it? Like, why would it show itself to be to yeah, be evil right. and, and desiring your destruction because it wants to trap you? And so people are discovering these things because in a lot of, a lot of cases, I've met a lot of practicing witches and a, a, a very common story is they were raised in the church, they were raised Christian, and then they went to college or got exposed to the world and their faith was weak and they didn't. They, just, they, they had very little education in, in, in the world and, and, and scripture and they had no firm foundation and they get into the world and, and they discover that the Christian naturalistic perspective that there is one God, there's no other spiritual beings, oh, but also there are angels and demons, but we, we don't like, you know, they're whatever. But then they encounter a supernatural world that exists and is real, but they have no framework for how to approach it. And so they dive off the deep end and say, ah, oh, church lied to me. Christianity lied to me. It's a bunch of hogwash because they have not studied their Bibles and they did not, they were not raised in a church culture that was able to equip them well and train them in understanding what the text says about the world we, we live in. And so why this is important is because this is growing the, the uh, supernatural awareness of these beings is growing steadily yeah. but fast. And, and it's evidenced by the fact that it's now already in pop culture. Yeah. It, and, and I think to a great degree we are late in addressing it as Christians, yeah. which I think historically we're really good at that. Education and the church are really good about being 28 years behind historical yeah. cycles. Yeah. Um, and so... At some point, you know, the Old Testament says, you know, these uh, the people of the Lord, the, the tribe Issachar, uh, they were the ones. I, oh gosh, I'm I should have like put this reference down. I think it's Issachar. Um, they were people who knew the times and understood what they should do. There's a component of our discipleship in the Lord. We need to be people who understand our times and we know what to do. And the only way to do that is to function in domains of society, to yeah. be present in culture and understand. It's not just pop culture, but what pop culture and culture at large is already embraced and involved in. And so, Chris, you have some takeaways. You got Hayes takeaways. All right, so we're going to go to Hayes takeaways. But and 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 as we go there, here's what I'm just if you want to go find a a person that's worth looking into, who uh, Diana Pasolka. She's a uh, religious professor at the University of. She's not a Christian. She's not a Christian. I'm not advocating her worldview as a Christian worldview. But what she is is a person who has dove into this world of religious studies. 
PhD. She's a professor at University of North Carolina. She's got a book. I think she's got several books. And she was just recently on the Joe Rogan Experience yeah. um, writing about this because it is pop culture. She does write about the Rosicrucians. She does write about Freemasonry and the Templars and the spiritual stuff behind that. So if, if just know that this is already in pop culture. It's in academic culture, pop culture, and those two things inform everything else. And so whether it's television, which we talk about has been hotel, these things and these things that happen in entertainment are informed from academics and pop culture. And so yeah. what you see in entertainment is a reflection of what is brewing under the surface. And we as Christians cannot afford to stay in ignorance about this and pretend like it's not there. And so as a result of that, I just encourage people, go look her up. If you don't want to, uh, th- there's several good things. I, I would say the, the uh, if you want a Christian perspective and to hear her would be uh, the cultish podcast with the particular uh, one called uh, Alien Revelations. Mm-hmm. There are 10 episodes and they do a lot of Diana Pasolka stuff in there and yeah. citing her. And, um, I, and, and you're going to get that. That's going to come from a Christian worldview. So you're there's no danger of incorporating something you shouldn't yeah. incorporate through that podcast series. I would encourage people to go do it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm going to stop. We're going to stop. Chris, give us some takeaways, and then we'll draw this bad boy to a close. All right, let's do it. Uh, here are my haste takeaways for today. Uh, number one, the unseen is hard to believe. Uh, I think we've seen enough evidence to know Jesus is real, and most of us believe the Bible is real and, and inerrant. However, when it comes to some of the things that we've been discussing in re- recent episodes, we want to—I just want to acknowledge that we understand this is hard because um, we can't see it with our eyes, and the Bible often doesn't go into great detail about them, and it's just not easy to always know what to believe, and that's why it's important to read your Bible, to study it, and to look through um, important aspects and, and through the connections throughout the Bible. Number two, expand your perspective and outlook on what is real and what isn't. And let me clarify that a bit because that may sound odd. I'm not telling you to expand your beliefs and about everything or to expand to unreliable outside sources and just trust everything. What I mean is don't be quick to dismiss things in Scripture that are hard or difficult to comprehend, but read with an open mind and then begin to seek out answers primarily in the manual and see how that impacts the meta narrative and the redemptive story of Christ. Uh, number three, careful curiosity is a great thing, but be cautious of getting stuck down too many rabbit holes. But test everything according to the Word of God and use good judgment and discernment for all other sources. Uh, number four, walk in humility. Right, First Peter 5, 5 and 9 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yeah. So again, like pride is pride is the posture of all principalities and powers. Mm. Humility is the posture of Christ. Mm-hmm. So fight the devil with meekness, with a confident assurance of in Christ, and not oneself. Humility is our war garment as we go to battle. And then number five, always speak the truth in love. And I'll close with this word from former slave trader turned hymnist and pastor John Newton, taken from his first public service at St. Mary uh, Woolnoth in London, December 9th, 1779. His text, he was talking about speaking the truth in love from Ephesians 4.15. And he says this, The Bible is the grand repository of the truth that will be the business and the pleasure of my life to set before you. It is the complete system of divine truth to which nothing can be added and from which nothing can be taken away with impunity. Every attempt to disguise or soften any branch of this truth in order to accommodate it to the prevailing taste around us, either to avoid 
avoid the displeasure or court the favor of our fellow mortals must be an affront to the majesty of God and an act of treachery to men. My conscience bears me witness that I mean to speak the truth among you. Solid gold. Preach, brother. Yeah. Man, that's bringing the thunder as we close up. Well, shake and bake. Shake and bake, baby. <laughs> Absolutely. Gabe, thanks for your insight. It was yeah, a man. pleasure Great to have you, have you today. Uh, Chris, as always, thank you for incredible content and uh, and for the precious gift of Gobbler's Knob. And uh, we will forever, I will forever be grateful for the location of Puxitani Field. We appreciate you guys listening to Theology in the Dirt. It's an absolute joy to do this. Sometimes we like, how do we get to come in here and do this? And it's probably way too much fun for us we hope you guys enjoy it too check us on out on the old interwebs at theologyanddirt.com you can check all the podcast episodes sermon notes there uh, you can find us on spotify apple Podcasts, whatever podcast platform we're available on all of them iHeartRadio, all of it we're there uh we hope that you'll leave us a comment and share the podcast give us five star rating also hope that you'll send us some questions theology in the dirt at gmail.com you can send us questions if you have any follow-up things you want us to talk about we're glad to get after it So with all that, y'all have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Out.